Let's pray together. Father, grant us the perspective of the psalmist who viewed your word as more precious than fine gold and who understood your word to be more sweet than honey from the comb, infinitely precious and infinitely satisfying to the soul. Father, perhaps that's not how we feel as we come to open your word today, but would you awaken in us a desire to hear your word and to obey it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think you have a hard life, spare a thought for the invisible man. He first disappeared in the 1897 science fiction novel, same named by H.G. Wells. And as his name suggests, he's a man with a unique characteristic. He is completely unseen to the naked eye. He is utterly invisible to the visible world. Perhaps you would assume that there would be some perks with this particular trait. However, as the story unfolds, we discover that in fact, being invisible has its problems as well as its perks. Not least, it does create some difficulties in building relationships. I mean, how does an invisible man relate to a visible world? And how does a visible world come to know and relate to an invisible man? You know, one of the facts that the Bible declares about God is that one of his attributes is this. God is invisible. In 1 Timothy 1.17, God is described as the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the Only God. And so, this is no longer abstract because similar questions arise for us with God. How does an invisible God relate to His visible world? And how do we relate to Him? One who is immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. This really is something very problematic for some people. Especially for those who are not Christians. In an age where seeing is believing, they say, if I cannot see God, then I can't prove God. And if I can't prove God, then I can't believe in God. And then, of course, too, God's invisibility can be an ongoing challenge even for believers, too. Some years ago, the popular Christian author Philip Yancey wrote a book entitled Reaching for the Invisible God. In the book, he, he pictures 
a Christian sitting in a chair, faced across the way by an empty chair. And how do we relate? How do we know? How do we love this invisible God? Well, let's turn this morning to Psalm 19 together. The 19th Psalm, because it does provide answers to these questions. The Psalm offers, in fact, the classic response to how the invisible God makes himself known to a visible world. And we're going to read and learn and profit from it together. So, Psalm 19 is page 552. If you're using the Pew Bibles, uh, feel free to take those and read along. And the little inscription at the start of the psalm is part of the psalm, so we should always read that. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Few other places in the whole of the Bible so masterfully present the two classic ways through which God reveals himself than Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is perhaps the seminal biblical portion which answers this question, how does a God who is not visible to the naked eye, how does he reveal his nature, his character, his will to his world? And the answer is through two sources. 
There are two places from where God knowledge is derived. It was true then, and it's true now what this psalm tells us about these. So let's look at them in turn. And here is the first place we should look. Looking up to the skies. For us to know something more of God, David says, we urban dwellers need to become sky gazers. It will not do for us to be merely pavement staters. We need to tilt our heads every once in a while and hopefully regularly to appreciate something of God's majesty. We need to look to the skies and the heavens, verse 1. These are virtually synonymous terms. They literally refer to the expanse above. So it is everything above our heads. It's both the daytime sky and also the nighttime sky, verse 2. It's what's within our atmosphere. It's also what lies beyond in what we call outer space. And the remarkable fact that David reveals about this expanse above is this. The skies speak. The heavens, verse 1, declare. The skies proclaim. Just as I am conveying a message to you this morning, so the heavens declare a message day by day. You look at verse 2, it tells us that this speaking occurs day and night. It's a non-stop sermon. I remember back in 2001 reading a story about a Church of England vicar who had apparently broken the world record for the longest sermon. It had been 27 hours, but he went on and on for 36 hours. I don't know whether his congregation lasted with him. But I'm sorry to tell him that, strictly speaking, his wasn't the longest sermon because the skies have been preaching a sermon from the beginning of time. And what have they been preaching? Well, verse 1 tells us they have been preaching the glory of God and the work of His hands. On the one hand, the worth of God, that is His glory, and on the other hand, the work of His hands, that is His creative power. The skies reflect like a a carnival mirror, imperfectly but truly, something of the dazzling magnificence of the nature of God Himself. And they also tell us, in terms of the handiwork, something of the detail And something of the fact that behind the detail, there is a designer. The sky points us further up than itself to God himself. And this is true in experience, isn't it? This is what happens in experience. Nikki and I, we were driving back from London on Monday night. And it was about 10 o'clock in the evening and the sun was just about creeping over the horizon. And I love coming into Edinburgh from the west, especially. You get incredible views, don't you? And if you've been away on holiday, you really appreciate it. And you see Arthur's Seat in the distance, miles away, the Pentland Hills. As you come in, you see maybe the silhouette of Edinburgh Castle. I enjoy looking at that. But, you know, on Monday night, we weren't looking at that. 
Because away over to our left, away beyond the fourth road bridge, the sun was making its final curtain call. And it was flooding the sky with reds and pinks and, and yellows. And it was a spectacular display. And a funny thing happened. It was only as I was studying this, it jogged my memory back. What happened was in the car, God became the conversation. And Nikki began to, my wife, Nikki began to talk about how can people look at this and not believe in a God? How can they look at this incredible painting in the heavens and not believe in a God? And we started to talk about God. What made the conversation turn to God? What was it that prompted her and us to begin to talk of God and indeed to worship God? It was the skies. You see, the skies were declaring to us God's glory. They were speaking to us of God's worth. And we just joined in the conversation. Some of you have had that same experience. You've been standing maybe on top of a mountain and you've been gazing out. You've been looking over a a crystal glass lake. You've been looking up in the countryside at the dead of night and you've just seen a panorama of stars and you were made to worship. Were you not? True, not everybody sees what you see. Not everybody sees what David saw. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 1. He admits that some deny God's handiwork. But he also says that this denial isn't because the equation between nature and creator isn't obvious. Since the creation of the world, Romans 1 verse 20. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse Paul goes on to argue in Romans 1, if you read it later, that the problem is not the sky speaking clearly, but the human heart living rebelliously. What Paul calls darkened hearts is the condition of blind people who will not and cannot see the artist behind the artistry. Again, when we were in London uh, this week, our inquisitive five-year-old son was fascinated by this incredible city. And there's a lot of wonderful artistry in London. We were in the Science Museum one of the days, and there were some incredible paintings and things in there, but there was also, what I liked, uh, one of the Apostle, uh, the, the Apollo mission spacecrafts. I don't know which one it was. It was amazing, and it had pictures of one of these up in space, and we had to explain to Glenn, that someone had made this, someone had obviously designed this, and they built this to land on the moon. And there was incredible monuments and statues and things like this. And again, we had to explain, these were designed, somebody built these huge, incredible structures. But am I expected to give any less of a cogent explanation to my children when they ask me about things infinitely more complex and amazing? Where did the sun come from? Oh, well, there was some big random explosion somewhere. Sometime back. Daddy, doesn't explosions usually, you know, damage and destroy things? Ah, well, not this one. 
I mean, who put the colours in the rainbow? Who taught the honeybee to dance? Who put the snow into the snowflake? It surely can't be chance. When paintings have paintings and builders have buildings come from builders and inventions come from inventors. Who made more mysterious things like insects and people? Paul says the evidence is clear. David says the evidence is clear. God's glorious handiwork is decisively declared in the heavens. And furthermore, it is something that is available to the view of the whole world. There is no speech, verse 3, or language where their voice, that is, the voice of the skies, is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So there's no place, Rachel was telling us this, that you can live in the world where you will not see the sky. Perfect example, the sun. Verse 6. That's why he talks about the sun, because it demonstrates this, that everyone sees the heavens. It rises from one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And so regardless of the location where you live, regardless, verse 3, of the language that you speak, the Son, in wordless words, nevertheless communicates something of God's majesty to you where you are. Like a rejoicing runner. And I picture, you know, Eric Little, chariots of fire running his course, or like a giddy groom on his wedding day. The sun declares with joy the glory of God. One reason the world spins round is so that every day in every place we can all witness the same sun glory and we can all witness the same God. That's why the world spins round, theologically. We can all be reminded. Now, I say that we can be reminded because the fact is we may not utilize this benefit. Here's a very practical application for you this morning. Some people say to me, I like it when it's practical. Okay, here's a very practical thing. How often do you take time to look up and to appreciate, for some uninterrupted time, the heavens above your head? John Calvin once said, The reason he believed God created us to walk upright was so that we could look up easier. Because if we shuffled around on all fours, this would be very difficult. But you know, God's made it easy. Are we making the most of it? True, we don't worship the world, but the world helps us worship. Now, someone objects but we don't have very good weather in Scotland. Even this morning as I was uh, looking out my window at 7 o'clock, I couldn't but help see the irony that I was going to be preaching on the glory of God in the heavens and there was nothing but mist, what we call the Edinburgh Har. I'm sure God's glory is manifest in the Har. I'm not quite, haven't figured out how it is yet. But nevertheless, there are enough days, aren't there? Even this week, practically every day, the sun's been pouring in my window, disturbing my computer screen because I can't see it. And this passage has been prodding me, as it were, in the back to get out of my seat and get out of the office for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, sometime to actually witness something of the glory of God. 
One Christian has made this resolution at least once every day. I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above me and about me. So knowledge of the invisible God is gained from the visible world and most prominently through the heavens. But how do we learn more about God than that? You see, the thing about creation, what we sometimes call general revelation, the thing about it is it's impressive and it's huge, but it's not very specific or detailed. It tells us that God is very great. It tells us that God is our maker. But what else about the character of God can we know? And therefore, we need what is often called specific revelation. And so David turns from looking up to the skies and he shifts his gaze now to looking in to the scriptures. If you want to see God in all his glory, if you want to see God in all his majesty, if you want to know all of what God wants from you, all that he demands from you, and all that he has done for you, you can do one thing better than looking up to the skies. Do a Bible study. The psalmist sees the scriptures as the apex of God's revelation. The apex. Now let me try and unpack this. I think it will be helpful to break this up into three steps or three observations of what David says about this apex of God's revelation. First of all, observe that in verses 7 to 11, the scriptures to which David speaks are the Old Testament scriptures. David, of course, lived many years before the New Testament was written. His Bible was much, much thinner than our big, thick Bible. And in fact, he didn't even have all of the Old Testament. And while we can't be sure of exactly how much scripture he had, what does seem certain is that David had in his hands the the first portion of the Bible, The Old Testament law. You can see this just by the words that David uses for Scripture here. He calls it the law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, the fear, and the ordinances. And these are all words that allude to the law of Moses. The law that was decisively given to Moses, to the people of Israel, through him at Mount Sinai. And the most famous example, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Now, this is the scripture David is talking about. Very important to grasp this because it adds force to what comes next. And what comes next is the second observation that David revels in this Old Testament law. Now, I don't know how excited you get when your Bible reading plan tells you in the morning you're moving into Leviticus. I'm guessing some of us aren't too excited. You know, is that the wrong... Is it not Luke? David is undoubtedly a rebuke to most of us. Because David is so enthused about the law. And indeed, while he has spoken positively about God's world in verses 1 to 6, you'll notice that in verses 7 to 11, David, by comparison, waxes lyrical about the law. The sun and the stars, they impress it. But the scriptures, 
They utterly infuse him. So, for example, we see this enthusiasm in the fact that David uses no less than seven adjectives to describe the law. It is perfect and trustworthy. It is right and radiant. It is pure and sure. It's altogether righteous. He just doesn't have enough terms to describe this. And then, if this wasn't enough, David adds two further comparisons. And he says that the law, firstly, is like much pure gold, only it's more precious than the finest gold, verse 10. And then he adds that the law is sweeter than honey from the comb. So it's infinitely valuable than anything money could buy, this law. And it's infinitely more satisfying than any pleasure, any pursuit, any other activity you could possibly be doing apart from this. And then, if this weren't enough, as well as the adjectives and as well as the two comparisons, he then also mentions five powerful effects of the law. You see, for David, the law isn't just impressive. It's impactful. It it transforms the way that he lives. And so he says, one, it revives or converts the soul. Two, it makes wise the simple, both verse 7. Three, it brings joy to the heart and then light to the eyes, fourthly, in verse 8. It finally warns us when we're in danger of sinning and sixthly, rewards us when we obey it, verse 11. Are you getting the impression that David loves God's law? David reveled in the law of the Lord. As much as any football fan revels in their team on a Saturday afternoon. And again, he was rejoicing in the law of all places. We have so much more at our disposal. We have, just look at it if you've got your Bible in front of you, we have the whole Scripture. We have the whole counsel of God. We have the whole Gospel. We know who the Messiah is who was promised in Deuteronomy and in Genesis. We have the Old and the New Testaments. So much more reason to treasure God's law. And yet, we possess so many Bibles, at least in our house, they're everywhere. But sometimes we don't prize this book like we should. Are we eager to read the Scriptures? Maybe when you were a new Christian, you were just lapping up the books of the Bible. Are you still eager to learn from God's Word, to sit down and read it, whenever you do? Are you eager to speak of God's Word? Is there nothing more thrilling than having a conversation, not about how your day has gone, not about what's going on with the family and the kids or the job or the sports, but actually what's going on in the Bible? Is that thrilling and exciting? This eagerness was recently illustrated for me in his book, The Wonder of the Word of God. Robert Sumner tells us of a man who was severely injured in an explosion. This man's uh, face was badly disfigured. He lost uh, his eyesight uh, and also his hands. 
And this man, he had just become a Christian not too long before he had the accident. And one of his great disappointments was that therefore he could no longer read his Bible. He didn't have sight. He didn't have his hands even. So it happened that he learned of a lady in England who could read Braille with her lips. And so he ordered some Bibles in Braille and he tried to do this with his lips. But he discovered that his lips were so badly damaged that he couldn't distinguish between the characters. And then sometimes later he had picked one of these Bibles up again. He tried it once more and accidentally he touched the Bible or the Braille with his tongue. And immediately he realized he could feel the sensation with his tongue. And he thought, well, I could learn to read the Bible with my tongue. And when Robert Sumner wrote this book, this man had read through the entire Bible four times with his tongue. You know, I think, I think I'm embarrassed by how uneager I am sometimes to read my Bible. Even through the one time. So often, let me be honest, I don't open the pages with glee first thing in the morning. We pastors live in the same world as you, you know. And uh, when the alarm goes off at 6 a.m., yeah, the bed is so warm and comfortable and the kitchen's so cold, even with a coffee with the Bible open. And what's more, it's not enough, even on those days when I do get down there, it's not enough simply to, to sort of get through the rigor of it and the discipline of it. You see, David, this wasn't just discipline and rigor. These are great things. Don't misunderstand me. He was excited to be there. And so I really do think that as well as the disciplines and the accountability, maybe the biggest thing we need to do this morning is actually pray to God. Because only He can truly awaken that love and that excitement, that hunger and thirst for His Word. May God grant us even half the delight of the psalmist in the law as we read the whole of the Bible. So that's the second observation. David reveled in the law. But here's the third and final thing. Notice lastly that David revels in the scriptures. And here's why. Because he knows it is a revelation of God himself. David didn't delight in his Bible simply because he loved the literature. He loved his Bible because in reading the Bible, he met with God in his character and in his work. You see, the Bible is ultimately a revelation of God. Even the law was to David a revelation of God. Observe something very striking here. Notice that the law and the Lord are so tightly connected by David. They are interconnected. They are intertwined throughout this little section. Six times the law or its synonyms are tightly connected to as of the Lord. Of the Lord. Do you see that in the text? It is the law of the Lord that is perfect. It's the precepts of the Lord that are right. It's the ordinances of the Lord that are sure and altogether righteous. Now, why is David being so longhand about it? 
We know the first time that this is of the Lord. Why does he keep saying this is of the Lord? David wants us to know that the wonderful character of the law emanates and is connected to the character of God himself. He never wants us to think of the law in all its greatness, in all its wonderful attributes, as separate from God. Because the qualities of the law are the qualities of God himself. If the precepts of the Lord are right, for example, what this tells us about the Lord is that he is righteous. And if the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, what this conveys about the Lord is that he is trustworthy because it's his word. Psalm 19 tells us not just about the character of the law, but ultimately about the character of the lawgiver. And do you know the whole Bible is like that? The Bible is finally, indeed it is primarily, a revelation of God. It's not simply a book of principles. It's a book about an astonishing person, a divine being. And if you're not reading the Bible for him, then you're not really reading the Bible. The Edinburgh Book Fair, I saw them setting up just across the road there in Charlotte Square. The fair is going to be starting pretty soon. And you may know that they have uh, the likes of John Prescott and Sean Connery and some others are coming to speak about their biographies. And many people will buy those books. And the reason that they buy those biographies is not mainly for their historical value, though they may learn some facts from it, but it is mainly so that they can get the scoop on who these people really are. The Bible is in many ways an autobiographical account of God, who he is and what he has done. Should be our primary motivation for studying Scripture. Yes, glean doctrine. Yes, gain wisdom. Yes, learn about biblical ethics and what you should do here and there. But if you come away from the Bible not knowing God better, you've missed the point. You've actually missed the point. Now, when we get it right, when we get this right, and when we confront God in His Word, here's what happens. Notice. David's response as he meets in the law of the Lord and as he sees in creation the one who made it. Notice what happens in verse 12. David begins to, for the first time, speak about himself. And he says, who can discern his errors? Against the perfection of God's law, And in light of the glory of God's creation, here's what happens. We see the error of our ways. We see the solid sin in our lives. We see the shame of commands broken. Conviction comes. And so we rightly begin to plead with David. Forgive my hidden faults, even things I don't know about. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. The beautiful thing is that David confesses this as a believer. I love the fact that he finishes the psalm by reminding himself of the security he has in a personal relationship with God. 
Observe that David ends the psalm by expressing his personal confidence. May the words of my mouth, verse 14, and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As a believer, what a difference. What a difference it makes to come to God's word and be convicted of my sin as a believer. To confess them knowing that I can entrust myself to God who will forgive my sins. What a difference it makes to sing this psalm, to pray this psalm as a believer. You know, if you have any children and they say sorry for some misdemeanor, they do so within the sphere of a trust relationship. That's what David was like in this psalm. And you know, I trust this morning that everyone here knows God in this personal way. That as you come to God's word and you see what he demands, and you see your sin, that you will confess it to God and you will put that personal trust in Jesus. It's ultimately not just through repentance and through faith, but it's also, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ. God's most decisive word that we come to know God. At the outset, I mentioned the invisible man. And the tragedy of the invisible man was there was just nothing he could do to solve this problem that he had and make himself known to people. We've learned this morning that God's invisibility isn't a problem for him. God has no problem in making himself known. He's shown himself in the skies and he's revealed himself in the scriptures. But there's something else. There's something more. There's something greater. And David couldn't see it from his Old Testament vantage point. Yet we can see it from ours. God has finally and fully made himself known in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus is God's living word. Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus has made visible the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, John 1:18, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Colossians 1.15 adds that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And this invisible God made visible man, Jesus Christ, climbed a hill, and he went to a place called Calvary, and there he was crucified, for the sins that are so visible in the world. And he then rose from the dead and he was seen by many witnesses. And one day he will return and every eye shall see him. If you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus is the only true way you will come to know God. The world and the word are important means But the living word, Jesus Christ, is utterly indispensable today. You need to come to know Jesus. That's what you need to do. Trusting in him, turning from sin. Christian, are you utilizing the means God has given you to know him better? Non-Christian friend, what vital steps are you taking this morning to meet and to know 
the invisible God that's gone to such great lengths to make himself known. Let's pray. Father, we pray that each of us would come to know you. It's hard sometimes, Lord. Not because you fail to reveal yourself, but because we are rebellious, blind. We go our own way and we do our own thing. As we feel the conviction of that this morning and something of what you've done, not just in creation, but through the cross and through Jesus Christ, we pray that we would respond like David, confessing sin and putting our confidence in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.